This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. Golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original series. I am Ken Tripp. I am Zach Moore, and we're here to discuss some of the key reveals and turning points that directed Star Trek's future series and movies. Yeah, this is a subject I'd love to discuss often on Standard Orbit as we progress through these episodes. The idea of this subject is to speak to the key origins and events that created the foundation of the series. And we'll dig deep in future episodes into very specific occurrences, but today we'll talk about some of our favorites. Yeah, our favorites being Star Trek III, right? So, people, <laughs> so right. Star Trek III, to me, actually, if I had to say what my favorite Star Trek movie was... I'd probably say Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. I know it's kind of an odd choice for people because it's an odd number original series film, right? They, they all get a bad rap, but it, just, it has the most rewatchability to me. I guess when I was a kid, this is the one I always watched the most, so it has the most uh, uh, place in my heart, you know. And uh, so much of what we know of Star Trek from you know 1984 forward, when that film was released, comes from this movie. And I, I think a lot of people don't realize just just how much came from it, Ken. I think you're right. One of the things, Zach, that's interesting, we were discussing before the show, how many things came about between Gene Roddenberry, Gene Elkoon, Robert Justman, very collaborative, right? All these different ideas that came into place. But everything in Star Trek III came from one person, and that's Harv Bennett. And he doesn't get a lot of credit, or at least it's not talked a lot, about some of the things that he created in that movie that have gone on to be such a core foundational part of Star Trek. So I know to a lot of our listeners, we're going, didn't we just do a review of Star Trek Three? And I would say, well, yes, we have. But we're not doing a review of Star Trek Three today. We're talking specifically about some of the big reveals that came out of that movie that really just launched things that just continued on in the follow-on series and even some of the movies. So some of those would be in no particular order, the Bird of Prey, the Excelsior, the depth of Vulcan religion and mysticism, the idea of honor for the Klingons, that gigantic Earth space station, and we could even throw in Transwarp Drive if we wanted. Right, Zach? Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that, that appears a few times, I believe, in Voyager, uh, and then maybe some other shows, but uh, and uh, Earth Space Dock, I believe, is the giant Earth space station you're referring to, Ken. Uh, Earth Space Dock, that's right. <laughs> it's a big um, one. Yeah, I mean, so much. Like, if you just break it down, right, just the entire look of the 23rd and 24th century onward 
came from this film. New because you know Star Trek Star Trek Two used a lot of stock footage from the motion picture, so we mm-hmm. got the Enterprise uh, refit in the uh, dry dock again, and then we saw Star Trek Two also used the uh, Epsilon Nine station. They turned it upside down, and it was the regular space station. So they they you know they're, they're on a budget. Okay, uh, Star right. Trek Three, they got a little more budget, so they got that's gonna be a little more creative. We saw a whole new space dock. So that space dock we see again in Star Trek Four, Star Trek Five, <laughs> Star Trek Six. We see it in many stock footage uh, episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, mm-hmm. So they get their money's worth out of that prop. Or the Excelsior, right? The Excelsior, they use that model forever. Like, like it is, <laughs> have, it is yeah. that, uh, in, in Next Generation, whenever they meet up with another ship, it's usually the Excelsior-class ship. Uh, sometimes stock footage, sometimes not. Deep Space Nine, it's usually that ship. Uh, when you have the Dominion War going on in Deep Space Nine, there's lots of Excelsior class ships, and those ships are like a hundred years old. So I'm not, I'm not too sure about if those things would still be in service hundred years later. <laughs> but uh, what, what do you think, Ken? Being a military man yourself, <laughs> I would say it's possible in the future. I mean, with enough refits. I mean, in the original Enterprise was many, many years old. Uh, Mr. Atos could tell us exactly how old, but there's, you know, the idea that it's at least 30 before the refit right it's well been around uh and in star trek 3 itself admiral morrow tells kirk the enterprise is 20 years old which okay star trek was 20 years old but the enterprise is actually more about 40 years old <laughs> so that's that's a little bit of a uh yeah uh, discontinuity there it's true and i wasn't sure if he was talking about the refit i guess uh-huh. they were trying to add some age to it right because star trek 2 and we've had that discussion where it is many years have passed since the like another five year mission had occurred and all mm-hmm. that other stuff. So you lose track of time there. But could a ship last a hundred years? Well, it would it would be a stretch. There's no doubt. Uh, today's naval ships. The ironically, the USS Enterprise CVN sixty five, which was decommissioned three years ago, was fifty years old to the day or to the year when when she was retired. So she had a hell of a life. So I, I guess they push it, but you know, you were talking about Excelsior. I was laughing, thinking about that. It's like, how many times have we seen the Reliant? You know, <laughs> sometimes it has its, um, sometimes it has its roll bar, and sometimes it right. doesn't. It's, but... it's the, uh, I believe it's the, it's the Miranda class ship with the roll bar, and it's the Soyuz class ship without it. And uh, you know, if you're familiar with the Next Generation, you know the episode Cause and Effect, where they're in the yes. time loop, and uh, Captain Morgan Batesman, uh, Kelsey Grammer comes out. And they're like, and the Bozeman. Oh. yeah, they're like this ship has been out of commission for 80 years. I'm like, really? Because I just saw Reliant class shit like two weeks ago on, <laughs> on Next Generation, guys. So, <laughs> yeah, and the Bozeman uh, even shows up in Generations. Uh, yeah, they mentioned that it has to make a course correction, and uh, because of the Nexus. So yeah, so it's, it's uh, still in service, still and in it service. had, <laughs> and it had the guns from a um, a World War II era battleship on its roll bar. So hey, whatever, <laughs> you know, we, we have fun with these things, and that, yeah. that, that that that's that's pretty cool. But you're right, the Excelsior had a long lifespan in in all of the uh, the Star Trek incarnations after that, and then it became the Enterprise B. Uh, it just had those those kind of fins on the side to kind of make it a different looking ship but uh that, that became in generations we finally got to see the enterprise b and guess what it was an excelsior class so still still using that same same model after after all those years when it added those jowls to it as i call it it should have been called the alfred hitchcock class <laughs> anyway <laughs> i got gotcha. you anyway that's my opinion anyway but the um yeah it was it was it was a pretty cool ship and of course you know captain sulu eventually got it in star trek six and uh yeah, it, it had, like I said, it had a good lifespan, that's for sure. But even a longer lifespan than that, with absolutely, basically no change in design, was the Bird of Prey. 
Done. Oh, the bird of prey. The bird of prey. Tell, let me tell you about the bird of prey. Okay, so I'm listening. In in, in Star Trek three and four, it's it's you know a scout class ship. I think Sulu has has twelve officers and men. So yep. it's it's a small ship, and yep. uh, it lands on planets. We get it because because it lands like on Vulcan. We get a good perspective of how big a person is versus this ship. So it's a pretty small kind of ship. Uh, and then I guess we're to assume they just made bigger versions of this ship like like the, the original bird of prey is like the iphone 4 <laughs> and <laughs> okay and then the the birds of prey we see on like next generation are like the iphone 6 plus okay because there's many episodes of next generation we see this in the scale is so off like uh you can only assume they made bigger versions because the enterprise d is like three or four times the size as the you know original enterprise and yet it's going nose to nose with these birds of prey you know yesterday's enterprise three birds of prey you know it's an epic you know, fight uh, at the wait end, a minute you know? wait a minute no, oh, well, here okay. we go. Time out. Time yep. out. If I remember, like they they from from yesterday's, they were three covert class cruisers. Oh, is that what they were, Ken? I see. They okay. were covert covert class cruisers. Yes, that just happened to look identical to the birds of prey that we saw. That would be a tenth of that scale. But I think that's how they justified those those being um, birds Bigger. of prey on multiple steroids. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to disrupt your flow there, but no, no, no. That, that's a valid something. point. That's a valid point. There's those cavort class cruisers. Watch out for those. Uh, so yeah, I, I, it makes sense. I mean, you know, uh, they they make if you have a good design and you just make it a little bigger, why not? Right? Apple, like I was saying, Apple proves it that you can do it, no problem. Uh, but man, they get their money's worth out of those birds of prey, and they're still you see them until the Rick Berman era of Star Trek is over. Uh, so, I mean, th- this, this is a design that wasn't even, and the, the whole irony of all this was it wasn't even supposed to be for the Klingons. It was supposed to be for the Romulans. So that's why it was a bird of prey, you know? And then they changed the, uh, they changed the bad guys in Star Trek three from Romulans to Klingons because people thought the general audiences would be confused that the Romulans look just like the Vulcans, the good guys. So just, just because of that is the whole reason we even have a Klingon bird of prey. And it became the definitive ship for the Klingons for the rest of the franchise. Crazy. I see. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I, I do remember that when it when it first came out and, and raising the eyebrow going, oh, okay, they named it after a Romulan ship. But still in that era, it seemed like the um, the Klingons and the Romulans were a lot allied, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it ties into the... It, it, it's, so, it's so fascinating to me how, how these budget constraints in Star Trek add to the mythology, right? Because the, in, in the third season of, of the original series... Uh, they had lost the Romulan bird of prey model or it had been destroyed or something. So in the Enterprise incident, they're like, well, uh, we can't find the Romulan ship, but we have this brand new Klingon ship. So they wrote it into the script that the Klingons and Romulans had this, you know, alliance at the time. So we got that the three, you know, uh, the Enterprise surrounded by the three Klingon battlecruisers, which are now Romulan battlecruisers, uh, which were a very cool addition to start to the remastered original series was they, they painted the, the bird uh, from the bird of prey. Uh, on the underbelly of the Romulan battlecruisers to kind of make it less 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 of a cheap cop out, but but that kind of stuff, you know, it's it's interesting. Just completely budgetary stuff ends up defining Star Trek for years to come. Much like we're talking about with this movie, you know, reusing props, reusing stock footage. It just it just defines the look of the entire universe. Oh, it does. I mean, the Bird of Prey was huge in Generations. It was huge in Deep Space Nine. It was used all the time. Uh, and then in the generation's first movie, right? It was a big deal. Um, uh, the, uh, the the stock footage from Star Trek Six, you mean? <laughs> and they blew it up. Yeah. That is the most that is the most egregious use of Uh-oh. stock footage 
in any film, all right? I mean, uh, the climax of Star Trek VI is you blow up a bird of prey. Okay, great, cool, looked awesome. We're all cheering when Kirk's like, fire, and Sulu's like, fire, and it blows up. It's a great moment, great moment. The next film, Star Trek VII, Generations, <laughs> the climax of that film is they blow up the bird of prey with the same footage. It's inexcusable. Inexcusable, <laughs> I say. Do they, and do they not have, like, a different angle or a take? No, anyway. We're not, we're not here uh, to talk about generations, but well, it's funny. It's, it's funny you say really that annoys though, because, me, man. well, I mean, we're talking about the bird of prey in general, and obviously, it played such a big part in in Star Trek Four. It was a big part in Star Trek Five, and then in Star Trek Six, it was able to use its stealth technology and firewall cloak. So that ship just became iconic yeah. in so many ways, and it's it's funny that uh, you say that about Star Trek Seven because I remember they're saying that. They couldn't create a better explosion was kind of the excuse. Now, I'm sure it saved money. There's no doubt about it. But that, that was kind of the mindset. The other thing it proved to me was that the the NCC-170A was definitely a tougher ship. It took a hell of a lot more torpedoes from a bird of prey than the 1701D. Yeah. And it survived. You know, it was a little messed up, bumps and bruises. Right. I don't. But... I don't want to hear about the shield frequency or any of that. If your ship can't survive a couple of torpedoes without shields, then it's it's not space space worthy, man. It's just like, come on. Anyway, you know <laughs> the uh, you know speaking of Klingon ships, the uh, I, I don't know what the name of the class is. You have to excuse me, but the class of ship uh, that they used in gen- in uh, all good things uh, in the future. Which, yeah. which became Galron's flagship, I think the Napar, I think it was called, in Deep Space mm-hmm. Nine. Uh, that was an awesome ship, and they had it for the Next Generation series finale, so it was available to them. It would have been great to see that ship and the Enterprise D going an all-out battle uh, in Generations. That would have been sweet, um, in my opinion. But I, I agree. It would have been a, uh, a more fitting end if, if they were going to switch ships out. And I, you know, there's a lot of people that grew up with Star Trek the next generation and 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 i understand so that becomes you know your your center-led star trek and Mm -hmm. and people really love that 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 design you know i I know a lot of people love the 701d and i think it's it's, it was a pretty cool design i thought it was radical which i thought was great for star trek Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't my favorite but i i liked it but i i thought it could have used a more glorious ending but that tells you how much the bird of prey has been used and how much destruction it has created and it's caused. It's, a, it's you know, as um, Kirk said in Star Trek Four, we could learn a lot from that ship. It cost us a lot. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of truth in that. Hmm. So, all right, so we've talked about Bird of Prey. We've talked about Excels here. Let's get into something a little bit different. Let's talk about the depth of, of Vulcan religion, mind melds, mysticism. This this movie really took us into a... To a um, I guess a, a different viewpoint and a depth into Vulcan society we had never seen. Yeah, we, we had seen Vulcan in a mock time. We had seen Sarek and Amanda, Spock's parents in Journey to Babel. And that's it. We had seen uh, Serac in the Savage Curtain. And I believe that's that's all for, for Vulcans like out in the original series, uh, if I'm not forgetting something obvious. Uh, there was the entire crew, the Intrepid, that died in, in the immunity syndrome, but we never saw them. They didn't factor in. So this is it. I mean, we saw Vulcan in the motion picture, and it had a moon, which it's not supposed to have. So Robert Wise corrected that in his director's cut. Thank you very much, Mr. Robert Wise. Uh, and we find out about the Culinar and the purging of emotion. So we get a little little hints of that. And I, and, and I liked how 
you know, we're talking about how everything uh, bloomed from Star Trek Three. There were little established things from the motion picture about the Klingons and the Vulcans that they took the seeds of that and they really, you know, put the, you know, watered the plant and the plant grew, whatever, whatever kind of silly terminology you want to use, right? But those, sure. they, they, they use that as a jumping off point to go full force in Star Trek Three, and and it's interesting. It's almost a strange juxtaposition when you see the Vulcans be such a, like a, a deeply spiritual people uh, because they're so logical and 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 it doesn't. It seems like on the surface, it seems like those come into conflict with each other, but they don't. They they make it work. Well, they do make it work. I, I think that being spiritual and logical aren't aren't two things that 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 are counterintuitive to me. If there's fact involved, right? And one of the things that they are able to do, obviously, in Vulcan, is they can read minds. They are they are telepathic to a degree. They can mind meld. But I think what what really turns the corner for Vulcans going forward. If you look at Star Trek VI, you know, where they have that deep mind meld with with Spock and uh, Lieutenant Valeris. Valeris. Yeah. Yep, Valeris. L- Lieutenant and, not Savick, yes. Lieutenant not Savick, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or, you know, you jump forward into Generations where they don't really touch the Vulcans much at all until Sarek shows up, mm-hmm. right? And they use that mind meld again to help control his emotions. And it brings everything into check. And that was like the first time in Generations we see that pop. And then later on in Unification, uh, that becomes a center part of the whole episode, is the fact that, quote-unquote, Spock never melded. But all of that circles back to Star Trek Three, where this, this Katra and, you know, the importance of that uh, continuity of life and spirit becomes such a central point and you know it's it's just it's pivotal because it really gives you a better sense of what the vulcans do how they how they i shouldn't say feel i guess but (laughs) how they react to death how they look at it is it's natural progression but yet there is a way to quote unquote download the essence of other vulcans and that's pretty neat and and to me that's where they've evolved uh, they've, they've evolved to the point where, you know, it, it never really talks about how they retrieve it, right? But they, they well, definitely yeah. <laughs> download it. Yeah, so if, if the Genesis planet had not regenerated a ready-to-go Spock body, I'm not sure where they would have put his consciousness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, that's an interesting thing. So only the body was dead, not his brain. Uh, so I don't know how much time would have been there or whatnot or what the thought process was or what Harv Bennett was thinking when he came up with it but it was brilliant in its in its inception and it took upon like you said small seeds that were planted in previous episodes but exploited to a whole different degree and and able to drive further I think in even into the reboots you know they, they really really drive into this well, again, it's so fascinating to me that this this was brought about, the whole fact that those Vulcans have a spirit, that it's not, they're more than just the body. The whole reason this even exists is because Leonard Nimoy, uh, well, it was in, people gave Leonard Nimoy his great death scene that he wanted that got him back from Star Trek Two. so Spock was dead. And now they're like, well, now we have to bring him back. What do we do? And they're like, okay, well, what if, what if he downloaded his brain to McCoy and we can, you know, so, so this was all based off, once again, outside outside like the meta narrative of star trek right it's out you know the production world and, and the logistics of okay we have to get spock back how do we do it 
well, let's give the Vulcans some kind of spirit or whatever. And and that is what informed this entire spiritual side of Vulcans, which I don't think we necessarily saw, have seen if we didn't need to resurrect Spock. Because whenever you talk about resurrection, it's got, there's going to be a spiritual aspect of it. And it's just so fascinating, fascinating, no pun intended, <laughs> that because of that, uh, we have an entirely, you know, this spiritual side of Vulcans that we didn't even know existed before, just because they had to bring Leonard Nimoy back to the Star Trek films. Uh, and I, yeah, I mean, I, who, who knows where the Vulcan culture would have gone had we not had to delve further in here with Spock and Sarek and, and going to the, 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 the steps of Mount Salea and all that stuff. It, it's just, it's all because they had to resurrect Spock. Here we are with this, this defining aspect of uh, the Vulcan culture. What do they say? Necessity is the motherhood of invention. And, you know, that's that's where these creative minds come in. And this is where it gets really interesting to me because they have to, when they're creating something new or they're enhancing something that is considered canon or canonical. <laughs> I love that word. Can, canonical? 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 <laughs> canonical. There was one person who wrote in, and forgive me, I know you're listening now, uh, very early in Standard Orbit Refit, and, and they, they used the word canonical. And I had never seen that word used in a sentence. I thought it was great, brilliant. And I guess, uh, you know, it's used quite often. But anyway, when you take something, and so my, my, my goal was to try to use that in a sentence on a few different shows. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm back. Um, but anyway, so to take something that um, and, and, and enhance it and improve it because you need to in order to fit this directive that, that Leonard Nimoy had such a good time on Star Trek II because he wanted to say goodbye to Star Trek, that he wanted it to continue now that it could be, quote-unquote, fun again, um, was was genius. It was just absolutely genius. And what's neat is you can just keep pulling, right? You can just keep traveling down that road. And, uh, you know, I, I was always um, interested to a degree on Vulcan society, how it worked, and, you know, on the, the animated... Uh, series the was it the infinite vulcan was one and then yesteryear was the other mm-hmm. uh, probably yesteryear was a much better episode but, yes you know you really got to you really get a better understanding of um of their society and i thought the best honestly uh best view or glimpse into it was in 2009 star trek it, you know it's they, they actually kind of captured the essence of what they were saying in yesteryear and brought it fully around but Star Trek Three again had there was so much that was pulled from that, uh, as far as relationship and the fact that there can be no doubt that Sarek loved his son, and it was tragic for him to to lose it. You know, I mean, to the point where he was pretty upset that they didn't come back with it, <laughs> even though there's no emotion. So, to me, you know, Vulcan society is very complex. And I think they, they, they brought it to a whole new level in Star Trek Three, And, you know, you have to remember, it was Leonard Nimoy was was directing this movie. So I'm sure that he had a lot of input into how this was all going to, to transpire. And to make it a search for Spock, but also an exploration of Vulcan and their beliefs and systems, I think, uh, was an added plus. Right. Who, who better, as you said, to, to helm that story than Leonard Nimoy, who had, you know, conceived so much of who we understand Spock to be throughout the, the course of the original series. Uh, right. Okay. So are we done with Vulcan? Should we move on? Yeah, let's move on to the uh, second most well-known species from Star Trek, the Klingons, huh? They might be the most well-known. We'd have well, to take a poll. It's like, yeah, you, you always hear the guy with the pointy ears referring to Spock or the guy with the forehead 
referring to Worf. So take your pick, well, general think, public. Yeah, that would that would be an interesting poll. It would be hard to do with Star Trek fans because we're so engrossed in both. But from a from an outsider point of view, you know, you always hear Spock being referred to as Doctor Spock. Yeah. And the interesting, you know. <laughs> You know, who at the time the show was coming out was obviously a very famous baby doctor mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, but, you know, I used to hear it all the time. In fact, I was watching uh, an old variety show. And um, I can't remember the, the, which one it was at the time, but I remember he was introduced as Dr. Spock uh, when the Wrath of Khan came. So. <laughs> of course. Well, you know, I love this show. We just digress in so many areas. Probably it's me. I'm the one who just kind of wanders. So I'll focus. So on the Klingons. I, I took watching Star Trek Three and the way that Crude was treated, the idea of having honor, um, uh, that they, you know, uh, were, I guess, a little bit more hierarchical than than one would realize. Um, a lot of the terminology, yes, my lord, things along those lines. I'm guessing there was a heavy Star Star Wars influence. On Cruise, like Lord Vader and all that stuff. That's my guess, you know, because I had never, you know, yes, my lord. And now, is it is it Cruise or or Krug? I always pronounce it Cruise. I've always pronounced it Krug. Let us know in the Babel Conference, guys. Cruise or Krug? Yeah. So that's going to be an interesting thing to type. (laughs) So Uh, if if I'm right, if I'm right, it's with a J. If uh, Zach is right, I guess it's with a G. I don't know. And and or, it is for the record, it is spelled with a G. So I guess by default, I'm correct. But moving on from that, Ken, no 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 point in wasting more time on that. Uh, well, do you say hoog or huge? Uh, huge. Thank you. <laughs> is that how it's spelled with an e at the end? I think you got me, guys. Anyway, let us know in the Bible <laughs> conference. Uh, but anyway, it's all Lloyd, fun. Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> Yeah, Christopher Lloyd. Well, you know, we we only saw the. Klingon well, he, he never he never he never tells Kirk who he is. I love that he's like, "Who is this?" He's like, "Who I am is not important." Yeah. So this is your opponent speaking. Yeah. Yes, that that that's truth. I, I guess he he never did, but uh, and I never realized that until just now. Obviously, this is your favorite movie. You have a lot of trivia on it. Mm-hmm. But um, what what I, I guess what I appreciated about the Klingons being pulled into it is like, okay, there are. They're, they're our favorite bad guys. Um, they're ruthless. They're all this. And in the original series, they had no redeeming qualities. You know, in this in this movie, they're essentially under the belief that they're out there to, you know, to stop the ultimate weapon, just like the Enterprise incident. You know, they're going after the cloaking device, which is, uh, you know, an existential threat to the Federation. This weapon, if it just is fired on the planets, you can reuse it, which... Back in those timelines, um, this movie came out in 84, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. So it was made in 83, 82, somewhere in that range. And there was a lot of talks about the uh, the neutron bomb, which, you know, killed the people but left the cities. <laughs> and this, this Genesis device was kind of like that. It was, uh, you know, it kept the planet, but it just rewrote its DNA and you come up with a whole new planet, but everything in its path dies. Uh, so they, you know, it was it was their honor, their duty to to save their race well their, their motivation and, is completely believable you know i absolutely. mean like, like if, if the klingons had some quote-unquote peaceful terraforming technology with a side effect is it eradicates all life on a planet 
I'm sure, you know, the Federation would be all, all over that, you know, Section 31, you know, although it technically didn't exist at the time and in, in, in the real world. But, uh, you know, th- there would be some faction of Starfleet that'd be like, OK, we need to we need to get some guys on this <laughs> and figure this out, because this is a huge threat to our way of life if they decide to start using this weapon. And why would you expect them not to? Because they had always been those two mega powers had always been very hostile to each other. So you're right. And, and I think that the the key piece that showed you this whole honor part was Velcris. She gets the information. She doesn't lie. She says that she's seen it. And the second he says unfortunate, you know, everybody in the audience going, uh-oh. And, you know, you'll be remembered with honor and, you know, success, my lord, and all that stuff. And, kapla. Kapla. And, and, and you just, you realize from that point, oh, okay, there, there's more to this. I mean, that she was willing to die for the service of, of, of the Klingon race, which was very telling. Because, you know, you kind of get this mixed message of being just this hostile, almost animalistic, not all that intelligent group. And they have a code. And this is the first inkling that they have any code whatsoever. There's, there's no mention to this. Well, I, so I really, I wonder how much of that is switching the Romulans to the Klingons, though, because in the original series, the, the Klingons were like, as you said, the savages and, you know, no honor, you know. Uh, and the Romulans were the one with some kind of code. They were a more sophisticated uh, enemy. And I wonder if they were like, that was just a side effect of them switching it from the Romulans to the Klingons. I'd be very interested to, we need to find some expert on Star Trek 3. <laughs> I know the Tenudos well, again, know, know everything about Star Trek 2, but <laughs> who knows about Star Trek 3? <laughs> well, that's a great question. I, I think there's people in the Babel Conference who could tell us the Genesis. I, the Genesis! Beginning, I don't want to use that twice yet. I've come a long way. I won't get in there. Anyway, um, uh, to me, it's fascinating. Now, I, I knew that originally they were going to use Romulans, but I didn't know they had put pen to paper in it scripted now, Romulans. Maybe, and maybe they haven't. I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly where those decisions were made, but but let us know if you guys know on the Babel Conference. So yeah, because this is this is the stuff that gets us going, right? Right. <laughs> uh, and this, this is what makes the show more fun because it gets people to to be interactive. And you know, I, I will tell you that um, being a huge Star Trek fan, I I love these types of details. And, and I am sure that there have been times in my lifetime where I have read a section on this. But um, as they say, uh, my, my hard drive is pretty full. Um, I'm sure there was some article in Star Trek the magazine back in 2002 that right. described all these things. But uh, I'm sure there was. Uh, and it's gone now because, you know, like when I say my hard drive is full, and it's not full of great information either. It's full of just junk <laughs> and spam and <laughs> everything else. So I don't know if that it, it, that's a great theory though which what you're saying did they write this for the romulans and when they switched it over to the klingons kept what they felt was the romulan culture in place and just put a klingon character they in there use the word replacement tool and just switch it yeah. out yeah but if that happens zach imagine i mean look at the impact yeah it's insane because every like every klingon moving forward from this movie is based off of christopher lloyd's character here uh and, and you know various shades of him you know that's right, and and very early in generations, they kind of just they, they bring that forward. And what was, what was that episode with the uh, the Klingons that were trying to escape the Empire? Oh, Heart Heart of Glory, which is one of my Heart favorite of episodes of Next Generation. The, the first couple years of Next Gen get a bad rap. This is a Worf episode, his first episode, and it's really good. And it's actually Von Armstrong's first appearance as Commander Chorus. And he's you know Enterprise fans will recognize him as Admiral Forrest, and he's been. 
uh, an alien throughout Star Trek. Uh, he's probably, I think he's probably played more roles than anyone, and that's his first appearance. So Heart of Glory, great episode. If you haven't checked it out, check it out. Even though it's TNG season one, take a flyer on it. It's good. It's a good episode. But yeah, I mean, it, it was <laughs> it very inspired by these by these guys here in Star Trek Three. Well, if you think about it, because that Heart of Glory came out before Star Trek Five. Oh, so, yeah, true. So, so, so Generations was taking a lot from Worf and what they probably are taking from Star Trek Three because it was all canon, and mm-hmm. you know, and it was pretty much ignored in Star Trek Five. But in Star Trek Six, where you've had at that point three or four seasons of the Next Generation, all off the beginning of you know, first the the design of the new Klingons, Star Trek the Motion Picture. Yeah, I get it. Mm-hmm. Star Trek Three. Here's here's a race that operates a certain way, and although it wasn't hugely well defined, it was just enough where you you had planted the seed and you had had a foundation growing. Then you had Heart of Glory. Then you had several other generations episodes. Star Trek Five will just write off because they took them back to being the you know the mustache twirling villain for whatever reason. And then in Star Trek Six, it, to me it comes all full circle. But again, the beginning was Star Trek 3. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even further, I mean, as we keep talking about the Klingons here, but, you know, the whole Klingon language by uh, Mark Okrand, you know, who who, mm-hmm. who wrote, you know, literally wrote the Klingon Dictionary. It's a book you can buy, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. So he took, he took, and once again, taking, like we were talking about earlier, taking the seeds that would have come before, he took the, the various phrases that were said in, in the motion picture, which I believe were written by uh, James Doohan, uh, if I recall correctly, uh, someone someone correct us on that. Oh, if, I thought Okran did those too. No, I no he. I, I believe he used those and incorporated them into his his uh, language in Star Trek Three. Uh, to my okay. from what I recall, I'm not sure where I read this or, or saw it somewhere, but I believe James Doohan came up with the the Klingon dialect and the motion picture because it was just a few words like you know fire, <laughs> tactical stuff like that. Well, uh, it was, there was a there was a lot more to that. I mean, when Epsilon Nine was intercepting their transmission. Oh yeah, that's true. That's true. There, there, there was quite a bit of, of dialogue there. I don't I don't remember. You know, it's 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 overridden by the the translator. But mm-hmm. at any rate, it, it, you could be absolutely right. I but, have but the, the language to tomorrow. here. The language yeah. here goes from here in uh, forever. Like in all every Star Trek uh, from now on, now I, I believe I'm not sure entirely. I I don't see why they would change it, but I would assume the Klingon spoken in Into Darkness is the same Klingon from the Prime timeline. I haven't haven't run it through the Babblefish uh, Klingon to English or whatever, but <laughs> I assume it's the same kind of Klingon. So even now we're talking, and I'm sure if the Klingons show up in Discovery, you know if they you know if they show up in Discovery and they speak a different Klingon. There's going to be hell to pay on the internet, so they better be speaking the same version. So the other the other thing that that's interesting to all you said, I do remember very clearly that the Klingon dictionary, the cover of it was Commander Cruz and his two uh, two officers. Right? Do you remember the the? I don't know if you own the dictionary. But... Uh, I, I do not own the Klingon dictionary, but I know it's uh, Maltz, who was uh, John Lacaret from Night Court. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's right. But and, I'm just saying it's the three yeah, of them yeah. on the cover mm-hmm. of that. So it may be right because maybe they would have put um, if if he really had started off on the motion picture. But you're right. It's it's foundational. I mean, Kapla is everywhere. It's mm-hmm. even in Pulp Fiction, right? Or it's in one of his movies. Mm-hmm. I do remember seeing that. Revenge is a dish best served cold. Klingon proverb. You know, <laughs> I've seen that. But it's yeah, in Kapla, Kill, Kill Bill. Too. Yeah, yeah. Quint Tarantino puts that stuff in all his in all his movies. Big fan. So, <laughs> all right. So let's see. What else did we hit for 
for Star Trek Three. We had the Bird of Prey, we had the Excelsior, we talked about the Vulcan religion and the mind melds. Klingon uh, brought up the idea of honor. You, you also added all the ads to the language that, that was created from this, which is huge. Good one there, Zach. We talked about the big space station and its different incarnation. The last one, although it's, it seemed like this was going to be something that I was expecting to see in generations, but it never materialized. The next generation. Was, the next gen. What did I say? Generation. You, you, uh, you, you continue to refer to the next generation as generation, <laughs> Yeah. I don't know why that is. As, as a that's... fan of one and not a fan of the other, I like to have a distinction between those two things, Ken. No, that's, that's very fair because I'm aligned <laughs> with you there. It should be the next generation. So... I don't know why I did that. Maybe I was saying apostrophe S. There you go. There, there you go. <laughs> the next generation's use of warp drive, I would have assumed, would have been transwarp. In fact, when you know they said you couldn't cross warp ten, and we saw what happened in Voyager when you did. But yeah, the less said the, about that, the better. <laughs> yeah, there's very very little said about that. But the theory being that there had to be some kind of transition from what was warp speed in the original series and movies to what was warp speed in the next generation. There you go. Has now that you got ever it. been defined? <laughs> Has that ever been really defined? I figured that that had to be transwarp drive. Well, I mean, the warp scale, I believe this is probably in the Star Trek encyclopedia or something, was, was reevaluated because you have episodes of the original series where, like, I think the Kelvins, uh, not to be confused with the Kelvin timeline, right? The Kelvins right. from, uh, by any other name, take the, the ship out of the galaxy and they're going, like, warp 13 and I think uh, I think when Nomad takes control of the ship, do they go too fast too? I think uh, Scotty's like, we can't go that fast. Well, apparently right. you can. <laughs> so, uh, and then in uh, and even in Next Generation though, Ken, when when uh, the Traveler comes on board, they're you know they're like, Captain, we're passing warp ten, and it's like, okay. So that there's some. I think it, although they didn't use the term trans warp drive, I think they just changed their terminology. Um, I'm not really sure. I mean, the, the Voyager had like their quantum slipstream and the episode, uh, 100th episode right. timeless didn't work out well for them, uh, until they went back in time and changed it. But, uh, they're always looking for, you know, always new ways to improve. Now, I think, um, th I mean, talking about inspiration from Star Trek three and you know, speed and all this, you know, the Excelsior is the one that had the transwarp drive. And I felt like the vengeance in Star Trek into darkness might've had transwarp drive because they catch up to the enterprise and warp and they start firing at him. It's never really said, but I kind of saw it that way. Maybe I—I I don't know. You know what? I, it's funny. I don't put any canon <laughs> into into um, any of that. Uh, and and I don't get me wrong. I like the reboots. I even like Into Darkness as a sci-fi movie, not a Star Trek movie. But that was that was Star Wars thinking in Star Trek. That's mm. all that was. So warp speed was just a speed, like hyperspeed or hyperdrive, and this thing could, you know catch it i guess but gotcha. they never say warp two warp three warp four anything in that movie where that changes i think in the first one they do and the third one they do but not in this one anyway that's just me but anyway as you were saying yeah i mean they don't uh, i mean it's like how fast can you at what point do you like go so fast it just doesn't even matter anymore like i guess that's the deal with uh to, to transwarp drive you know and then it becomes basically like wormholes and and that kind of thing instantaneous travel so uh i don't know well, I, I guess the way I look at it is, um, you know, they, they've they've explored a very very small piece of of the galaxy, and there's there's other quadrants and there's other galaxies. So the only way you're ever going to obtain that is to evolve and 
figure out a way to get there faster or whatnot. You know, obviously we, we can't even get to um, Jupiter or Saturn for many, many, many years. So it's you know everything's relative. Yeah, that's what makes the show fun. But I did like the concept. I mm-hmm. like the term transwarp drive, and I would have liked to have seen it continue. And I think it pops up every now and then. You hear the terms, but that was why that we we kind of listed that last. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's there, but it's not a it's not a game changer. It could have been. It definitely could have been. Now before we wrap up, Ken, I, I do want to talk about a couple of. We talk about how Star Trek Three inspired. You know, so much of what we saw of Star Trek moving forward. I, I do want to talk about two key things mm-hmm. that are discontinuities in Star Trek Three. You know, to kind of wrap up here, it's, it's a different kind of category to our conversation. Uh, one, the big one, Savick, right? Mm-hmm. Robin Curtis or Christy Alley? Who's your favorite Savick? Christy Alley. Mm. But, it- but uh, I say that. Listen. I think Robin Curtis did a great job. Um, she played the Vulcan much more like a Vulcan should be played. I think that, that Kirstie Alley, um, when she came onto the scene and just was ignored, uh, just from her panel in Star Trek Las Vegas, it was kind of easy to see why they didn't want to bring her back. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> by the way, great panel by Kirstie Alley, one of the highlights of the convention. Yeah, and, you know, I met I, – I didn't – you know, I, I – Got to have a picture taken with Kirstie Alley, but I also got a picture with Robin Curtis because I really did love her Savick too. Uh, I just, I just initially, if somebody brings up Savick, I think I answered quickly Kirstie Alley because that was first. It doesn't mean she was mm-hmm. better or not. Maybe mm-hmm. I should, maybe I should just say who I think of first is Kirstie Alley. But I thought Robin <laughs> Curtis did a fine job, and I well, wish she, you know, could have come back in six and been the bad guy. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the, the thing with, with and the, the thing with me and, and and these movies is I have a different perspective than you can. I, yeah. I grew up, I watched them all together. It's like, oh, Star Trek Two's over. Where's the next tape? I'm gonna watch Star Trek Three, and here's Star Trek Four, and Robin Curtis is in both of those is Savick. So I'm like, oh, well, she's Savick twice, and this other person is Savick once. So I guess she's Savick, and you know, Star Trek Three is the one I watched the most, and my favorite. So uh, I gravitate towards her, and I do feel like she played the Vulcan Savick better. Uh, and you know Robin Curtis is playing a half Romulan Savic, which is never established on screen, but it's established in her performance. She's had, she's emotional. She kind of she's mm-hmm. angry at times. She cries. So uh, that kind of throws off the trying to gauge her performance. Uh, then also with with her, you know, I uh, she was like you said, she's the first. And I, I'm I'm someone recasting huge pet peeve of mine. When people get recast, I'm like, oh really? You know, like is Mark Ruffalo better than Edward Norton playing Bruce Banner in the Hulk? Probably, but I just hate when stuff is established and it gets changed. So it's interesting, like uh, in, in this case, um, being removed from like the you know real time events where like Savick was, you know, Christy Alley was Savick, a breakout character from Star Trek Two, and then here you are two years later and you recast her. I can totally see why people are like, whoa, what is this all about? You know. Uh, so I, I totally get both sides of it. And I both think that they both played the part as as was asked of them very well. And I definitely wish one of the two of them would have come back for Star Trek Six, as I understand it, uh, Nick Meyer wanted uh christy alley but that didn't work out didn't even ask robin curtis i guess the, the issue was that um gene roddenberry stepped in and didn't feel that uh that savick would betray the crew and it created quite a tussle between him and nick meyer because nick meyer in his words he created savick 
it wasn't even his quote-unquote creation. Why is he butting in? So they recast the role. I think they might have. The Roddenberry box strikes again. But anyway, that, so that is they, one they, they discontinuity. Might have had a shot at uh, yeah, like who knows? You know? Yeah. <laughs> but that is one discontinuity for uh, for Searcher uh, 3. And then the final one is the Klingon Bridge, right? If you look at the Klingon Bridge is something, much like the Bird of Prey, something that that set is used to death. Even up till Enterprise, they were using that Klingon Bridge for the Klingon Bridges. You see it in 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. <laughs> you know, you see it in all the TV shows, Next Gen, Deep Space Nine. Uh, in Star Trek 3, it looks completely different. It's like this white room with a big throne at the top of it. It looks nothing like it does in Star Trek 4 moving forward. And you got to think, like, what, did the Vulcans, like, give them a new Klingon bridge and they got a refit on Vulcan? It just really doesn't make any sense for the bridge to look completely different. On uh, Because in Star Trek 3, it looked very alien, you know, and I, I liked that about it. Um, but in Star Trek 4, it just felt like here is a different-looking kind of Starfleet bridge. You know, different colors and different panels, but the same basic, okay, here's our two guys in front, here's our communications behind me, science is next to her, here's the captain's chair. I feel like they kind of, they Starfleetized it a bit in Star Trek 4, but in Star Trek 3, it was a very alien-looking bridge, and I would have appreciated it, one, for continuity, and two, just for, you know, different cultures have different kind of command centers. So that's just my take on the bridge change between 3 and 4. I, I think of 3, and it's still... Its design, I would have thought, was actually more similar to traditional Starfleet. The only change, which made sense to me, was that the captain sat way above everybody. But he was still in a center seat that spun around, right? And um, and all the stations were to his you know, right, left, and, and center. And he could spin to face them, just like you would on a Starfleet bridge. So that, that made sense to me. Um, the color scheme, if you remember, the ceiling was like all these rainbow colors in star trek 3 yeah it was like purple and blue yeah, and white all kinds and all of kinds strange of stuff, colors yeah. and I, I i i didn't think about it i think probably till many years later it wasn't anything I, I probably picked up when i watched it you know in 84 when it came out because i thought it was it was fine the way it was um that it just had this feel of being you know just like starfleet ships um you know very sanitized uh you know very hmm. very clean uh you know and and it seemed to me when they did Star Trek Four, uh, they definitely rescoped it, but it wasn't exactly a center console seat that we were used to. It was it was different. It was hmm. I didn't mind the changes, I guess, because to me in Star Trek Four, it felt dirtier. It felt like you know. Well, that's that, true. That yeah, I, I see, more, more lived in. in. More... Yeah, but they probably had they probably had a bigger budget oh, too. You know, I mean, we yeah, saw well, the no... we saw the Excelsior Bridge, which is a very very poor excuse for a bridge in Star Trek. 3. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> yeah, that, so that, that was thrown together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was that, that was pretty bad. But you're right. I, I, you know, it's just it's just good conversation when I when I think about it. You know, that was there. There definitely was discontinuity. But I was thinking between what in Star Trek three, not after Star Trek three. So I, I think the mm-hmm. um, the bridge really after it was changed in Star Trek four. That's what you started to see. Even in Star Trek five, it was a little bit different. But then you're right, 80 years later, it was identical. 80 years later and then 100 years before on Enterprise. So. Oh, is that right? I don't remember <laughs> seeing the Bird of Prey on Enterprise. Yeah, there, there, are, Klingon, there are Klingon episodes on Enterprise where they, they have that same, basically the same bridge. You have and the whole like you know uh, submarine scope oh, yeah. you know, that comes down and people look through it. So anyway, they, they like the Bird of Prey. They, milk, they got their money's worth out of that Klingon set, I'll tell you. So, but so you know, just just to just to be fair, I'm gonna bring up a little, couple of discontinuities there. But uh, you know, I thought that'd be interesting to to look at those 
as well. But on, on the whole, man, Star Trek three, you know, a, lots of mixed emotions from people, mixed opinions about Star Trek three. I mean, it does undo everything Star Trek two set out to do. I mean, killed Spock, Spock's resurrected, gave Kirk a son, killed Kirk's son, killed the Enterprise. <laughs> it, yeah, both the Enterprise. So you know, I, I can see why people conceptually might have a problem with it, but I feel like it's. You know, the film, like I said, we're not here to review the film. We're talking about its impact on the rest of Star Trek. And wow, what an impact it had. Yes, it did. And talking about Star Trek 3 isn't the only thing we're talking about on Trek FM. So here's some shows you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, The Ready Room. I've seen some people panicking. Oh, my God, the Andorians are now going to be purple and... uh... The Tellarites won't be pigs. They'll be uh, aardvarks. You know, <laughs> no, that whatever. would be oh, great no, if they were aardvarks. That would be <laughs> Yeah. Standard orbit. My greatest joy is hearing from those fans who have read the book and said, I feel like I know him now. Thank you so much for that. I always thought he was a good man, but now I know he was a good man and he was somebody to you know look for a role model and try to be that kind of a role model to other people saturday morning trek i i try to see it how a kid would see it when they were watching this for the first time in 1973 it's not that if the devil's not real so god isn't real it's no the devil's real and he's actually kind of cool and maybe we should help him out a little bit <laughs> that's the way i kind of think it and i think that's even more transgressive than any any sort of statement on whether or not the devil truly exists. Melodic tricks. <laughs> darling, 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 Charlie is my darling. And I love that. <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So you can find us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website at trek.fm and grab the RSS link as well. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscription button. That makes it easier for our listeners to find the show when they search for iTunes. And we love new listeners, so please, please, please subscribe directly to Standard Orbit as well as the Trek FM Master Feed and help us increase our visibility for new listeners. Also, we would ask you to help us out with Patreon. Well, what is Patreon? Well, Patreon is the method that we use to fund the network. So I would encourage you all, if you can, if you can afford it, to go on to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Trek FM, and become a patron. And for as little as $15 a month, you can join Trek FM's patron roundtable, which is wonderful. I mean, this is how I found my way onto the network, and who knows? What could happen to you, right? You, you might find your way. And then if you're kind enough to donate $25 per month or more, uh, you get associate producer credit for the shows of your choice, and that's a big deal. And speaking of that, we would like to say thank you always to our associate producers for this show, for Standard Orbit, Renee Roberts, Richard Rutledge, and Aaron Harvey. Thanks so much for all of your support for both Standard Orbit and for Trek FM through Patreon. You can find Renee on Twitter at MRES underscore 1701. Richard, you can find at at RUT8972. And you can find our buddy Aaron Harvey at GeekFilter, all on Twitter. So look them up, follow them, and, uh, and thank you again. And if you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, 
You can always find us on trek.fm slash contact and look into the sidebar on the show page. Or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm and please leave us a voice message that we can play here on the show. You can hear your own voice on the podcast. Pretty fun. So feel free to do that. And you can also contact us through Twitter at trek.fm or through Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm and the Babel Conference. To find us at the Babel Conference, type the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. Babel Conference is a great way for you to connect with fellow listeners and the hosts of the network. So as for me personally, you can find me on Twitter at moronzach, that's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H, and I'm also the host of my own podcast called Always Hold On to Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that young Superman TV show, and we're on Twitter at alwaysmallville with one S. What about you, Ken? So you can find me as well on the Babel Conference. That's where I like to hang out. It's my favorite spot on Facebook, to be honest with you. It's the safest, funnest, uh, most respectful spot to talk Star Trek on the entire interweb. So look for me there and feel free to also look for me on Facebook at any time and feel free to IM me with questions or, or, or if you just want to hook up and be friends. Or you can, uh, you can get information from me via Twitter. Yes, I am on Twitter now, at Boston SCPO. That's Boston Senior Chief Petty Officer SCPO. And I look forward to communicating with you in between these shows, and especially when they drop. That's when it's a lot of fun. So we'll talk to you soon. So thanks, everyone, again for listening. And join us next time here on Trek.fm for another episode of Standard Orbit. <laughs>